Today, my guest is Professor Raj Agarwal. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Raj as a person. Professor Agarwal is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Agarwal is an AIB fellow. He is on the Kent State University Foundation Board and is a visiting research scholar at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. He was the former dean at the University of Akron. Raj has co-authored or authored more than a dozen books and over 100 scholarly papers. He is the editor of the Journal of Teaching International Business, and he has been the finance area editor for JIBS, the editor of Financial Practice and Education for the FMA, and an associate editor for Management International Review, International Business Review, European Journal of Finance and International Review of Financial Analysis. He has served as the president, vice president or program VP of the Eastern Finance Association, Financial Management Association and the AIB. And he has been a senior Fulbright scholar, research scholar in Southeast Asia and received the best essay in Global Finance Award. He has lived and worked in India, Ireland, Japan, Australia, Singapore, and Sweden. He has served as a judge for many Company of the Year awards. And thank you, uh, Raj, for joining us. Welcome. Uh, first question, what did you want to become uh, when you were a child? Well, when I was growing up, my father, who was a telecom engineer, he used to buy these war surplus radios after World War II and convert them to use in India because you needed the right frequencies and all that. So I saw him do that in his spare time. And uh, so I was fascinated by that work. So I wanted to be a scientist or an engineer growing up. And uh, what was the earliest? Can you pinpoint the earliest point of awareness between domestic versus uh, foreign? Well, you know, that's an interesting question for guys like me. Um, I wonder what, uh, anyway, so it's, um, we had, a, as you might know, you know, we had the British as an uninvited guest for a couple of centuries. And so, so when I was growing up, the evidence was all around, British versus Indian, you know. And so foreign versus domestic was in the air, in the atmosphere, in the air you breathe, you know. So you're very aware of that. And how did you choose academia? How did I choose academia? Well, that was an interesting process. I, as I said, I wanted to be a scientist. So I, I sat for this exam, national exam called Science Talent Search. And, uh, and I got selected. I got, came forth in India. And, and they put my name in a little book, says Future Scientists of India. So I started out, and they promised a, uh, both a scholarship and uh, living expenses and all expenses paid until I'm my PhD in science. So I started in, as a physics major at the University of Delhi. And uh, so I did start as a scientist, but then I also took this exam for something called the IIT, Indian Institute of Technology. And uh, that was an engineering school, the top at that time in India. And now I understand a fairly well-recognized engineering school even in the US. So I, again, I got, ranked 12th in India on that. So I had my choice um, to join them or stay in physics. And um, my 
my family, my parents and I both thought that engineering is more practical. At that time in India, the future job prospects for a guy in physics looked not that great. So, so all you could do is work for the government in research or something and government position didn't pay very much. So I, I chose engineering. So after I finished, engineering, I worked for a little bit, loved engineering, but then I kept getting questions about, hey, what's happening here? You know, why are they making this decision? So I wanted to get an MBA to understand business decisions that us engineers were being affected by. So I came to the US to get an MBA. And, um, and pretty soon after I was in the, after I finished my MBA, I got sucked into the doctoral program. And uh, it's a, during the doctoral program that I chose IB as a, as a, as a field. I see. And, a long uh, answer, but I hope it. Uh, no, it. No. Yeah, of course. Uh, who, who was the most influential person on your uh, intellectual upbringing for uh, in the IB field then? Well, in the IB field, I was very fortunate to work with John Rhines, another AIB fellow who has since unfortunately passed away. Uh, he was at Kent State where I got my PhD and uh, he really, he was not my advisor, but he really influenced my thinking in IB as well as I was lucky to spend um, a year with um, Professor Farmer, Richard Farmer, Dick Farmer. And he was another mentor for me. Uh, both of them were very influential and both of them really um, uh, guided me through early stages of my, of my life as an IB scholar. And I am forever grateful to their guidance. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Some on my, not on my CV, huh? Yeah. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> I hope there's a lot of stuff that I find interesting about me, but, but one of the things that, that um, I like to read history, I, um, I like to, um, uh, for example, I'm a bit of a punster, you know, I like to make puns, and my family tells me they're bad puns, you know, but then sometimes it really gets difficult for my family when I veer into cross-cultural, cross-linguistic puns. When I'm rhyming something with the, in English and in Hindi, you know, the Indian language that I grew up with, so so it becomes really more complicated for my wife. Kind of, kind of understands a little bit of Hindi, but she does. She's not a native speaker, and she she doesn't speak it. And my daughter, yeah, she understands more of Hindi, but she's not a native speaker either. So they both get a little upset with me when I do cross linguistic puns. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, if you could do it all over again, if you could start all over and uh, choose a completely different life, what would you choose? What would be the second best alternative career path for you? You know, I, I would have probably stayed in physics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but actually, serious. I mean, this has been always uh, true in emerging markets, in developing countries, uh, you know, the top schools, Uh, top students in every country get into math, physics, chemistry, which right. don't don't really pay. You know, these uh, there are no jobs really. Uh, business pays, economics because you go and find a job in a bank uh, pays. Right. Uh, right. If you're lucky, you start your own company. You, you become a vendor of some sorts. Right. Uh, a lot of my uh, classmates did that. You know. And. 
there's actually quite inefficiency in the mental power which is unused in uh, developing nations because of the 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 exam system yeah uh, yeah, yeah, yeah they select the best ones but the best ones basically uh it's a diff different reality obviously okay uh regrets have you got any regrets uh things that you wish you would have done or done differently well you know i'm uh, i'm retired now for the last 10 years and and in any examined life there are a lot of things you regret but but i know you know it's a um there were a lot of turning points in my career for example where i got some offers i didn't take i should have taken maybe you know and um and I think other than that, uh, my philosophy is that you try to do the best you can every moment. Use all the knowledge and gifts you have, talent you have to make a decision that's important. And so, you know, based on that, I can say that I look back and say, well, yes, in a daydreaming sort of sense that, that I maybe life would have been different if I had taken the other decision rather than the one I took. But other than that, I mean, I'm not sure I have too many regrets. I mean, I think as most people, I should have spent more time with my family. That certainly is true for me. And, um, and that's true for a lot of people. So, so that's definitely a regret. What did you learn from your biggest failures? Well, first of all, to be humble. I have a lot of them. Um, <laughs> So sometimes, you know, it's, it's just um, humility is very important. And I believe by now I'm quite a humble guy. And it's important to be humble, I think, because you can't learn anything if you're not humble. You know, very act of learning means you realize you don't know something. And so humility is sort of a, um, a prerequisite for a good scholar. And so I, like I said, made a lot of mistakes and blunders and I learned from them to be open-minded and open to other alternatives and, and have some humility. And that helped my scholarship, that helped my life, um, my helped my interpersonal relationships. So I think that's really the main thing that I learned. Now, in every case where there's a failure, you have specific things to learn about the situation. But overall, I think failure has a very important is very important for scholars. They need to fail. If they don't fail, they're not good scholars. Interesting. Raj, you, you, you've been to every level of the field, every level of the academia. You've been assistant associate, full professor, chair professor, dean. You've done everything. <clears throat> and how do you explain what you do and the importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly? So someone in, in the street, in a, in a coffee shop, uh, what do you do? Well, what's your research? Well, to a coffee shop guy, I would say, well, I my job is to find ways to bring more products to you, interesting products to you, and bring them at a cheaper price. Because what I do is I make organizations and especially cross multinational companies more efficient. And that's what I do. And by helping them more efficient, you know, you get more products and cheaper products. And, uh, and there are certain realms within, the, within that overall goal that I focus on sometimes, and especially the international financial aspects of it, um, you know, how to finance a company, how to 
uh, do uh, how is a company governed in terms of his board of directors and so forth. So foreign exchange risk management, effect of culture on finance. So these are the kind of things that, that I do, but ultimate goal is for you to have wider variety of products and at low prices. Okay. About uh, creativity in scholarship, uh, to write creative papers, interesting questions. Um, what does your mind uh, think of when it wanders in this state of idle curiosity? Or how do you come up with these uh, interesting papers to, to write, yeah. write about? Well, I think it's, it's always an evolution. You do one paper and you see the gaps in the literature on the second one, the next one. And so a lot of it is just evolution, you know. Uh, one, finding these two more gaps. As they say, the more you know, the less you know. And so, so you learn, that's one thing. And the second thing, of course, is that I try to look for ideas that are interesting. For example, I did my dissertation on foreign exchange risk management. Now, remember, I did my dissertation from 1970 to 1972. At that time, exchange rates, the US dollar was fixed. So people are saying, what are you talking about? Exchange rates don't change. Why are you looking at this issue? And um, well, having come from India, I know the exchange rates change, although periodically, the Indian rupee was fixed, but every few years, it'll devalue. So, so I had that advantage. So I did my dissertation and I have to thank Mr. Nixon for this, or really France for that. In, so I did my dissertation uh, 70 through 72. And, and in 1973, the French started sucking up a lot of gold out of the US because at that time, the US dollar was redeemable for gold that is by central banks. And so France started demanding a lot of gold in turn, in return, in turn for the dollars they held because they knew the dollar was not stable the way it was going. So because of the outflow of gold, Nixon had to do, he was a president at that time. So he had to do something to stop this hemorrhage. So he folded the dollar. So we're no longer redeeming it in gold. We are just based on other currencies and it floats. As soon as he floated the dollar, my dissertation and my field of expertise became valuable, both to companies and, to, and as an academic field. So I got very really lucky in a sense that I had a great start in my career. And Ever since then, I've sort of thought, let me think a way, little bit ahead of other people and see what I can pick up that people are not picking up. My latest endeavor, for example, is to, is to research the impact of cultural differences in finance. Now, to most IB people, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. But look at the finance literature. Nobody's talking about cultural differences and the effect on finance, hardly anybody. And so, <laughs> so I said, and I had some success with that at, you know, in the 2000s. And so, so I sort of pioneered that uh, field in some sense in finance. And the same thing with the foreign exchange risk management. And then, you know, I thought about culture. We used to work for Dana Corporation as an international finance director. And, and I noticed that these, one of my jobs is to put together consolidated statements by the fifth of each month from all the foreign subsidiaries. We had 28 of them in 28 different countries. So some people sent me the information without any problem. Other people had to be 
coaxed and kicked and whatever, you know, and, and it's so difficult to extract that information. The French, for example, said, we, not, we don't do pro formas because these are pro forma numbers. And so it was for the 30th of the previous month by the fifth of the month. And so that we don't do pro forma numbers. That's, that's illegal. We can't do that. And so forth. There were all these differences in accounting numbers. Some of them included some things in the expenses. Other, other people didn't include it. They included different things. So the accounting systems are very different. And so I started wondering why is that difference? And there was so much. And my conclusion at that time was that there's so much cultural differences in how people view accounting numbers and finance numbers that it was really quite amazing to me at that time. And so that question kept gnawing at me and until I started doing scholarly work in that area. I mean, what's the, uh, if a patient comes to you and says, uh, you know, what was the next big phase in the next five to 10 years in the field? What's a big question to ask? Like the Nixon moment you had. Uh, obviously, there is some serendipity. Obviously, there is some luck involved, involved in that one. But um, what are some of the things that, in your opinion, these are going to be, the, can you say, that these are going to be the next big questions in the field? Well, first of all, I hate to speculate because that's what I'm doing. You're asking me to speculate. And it's very dangerous because 90% chances I'll be wrong. So having said that, that caveat, keep that caveat in mind. And, and other thing to keep in mind is that I've always got one leg in business and one leg in academia. That's one of, the, one of the characteristics that most academics don't share with me. So some of the things I'm gonna say are gonna come from my practical experience on boards of directors and so forth. And at least in the last 30 years, I've been on boards of directors of companies, private companies. So when I think about what's next, I think obviously, which I'm not the only one saying that, uh, digitization of business is going to be absolutely big. A big thing in the next, you know, five, 10 years, because you've got to understand the process and, and how it's changing a traditional view of IB. Because, for example, a lot of people are saying, is globalization dead? Is trade is down? So maybe globalization is dead. And I think we are missing out because of services and, and our method of data collection in any country is very poor when it comes to services. And I think what is happening is that in global exchange is becoming more and more digital and we're not measuring it properly. And so it's just going, it's just changing form in a sense. And so digitization would be a, absolutely a, and its impact on traditional theories of IB and understanding is going to have, going to be big, at least should be big in my opinion. I think the second big thing which we are starting to go, go into that path is that we are, we have a lot of times paid inadequate attention to practical issues. For example, there are so many institutional differences between countries and we usually take into account only one or two of them. And the point is that there are so many important institutions that govern business in a country that is different from uh, business in another country that we need in international business research, we need to take into account more of these institutional differences and frictions in real life. So for example, you know, uh, finance is a resource, but there is very little work in international business 
thinking about finance as a resource. Um, accounting is an evaluation of existing operations, directing people uh, to put their resources where that does the most good. And that is not adequately represented. That real life decision problem is not adequately reflected in IB research at this point, in my opinion. So these are a couple of areas that I think that uh, the practical issues, uh, practical frictions, the institutional differences, and of course, digitization and its wider implications for IB. And what's your take on interdisciplinary research, multidisciplinary research? Uh, do we need it? Uh, do we need more of it? Or do we need to, because I, IB field has changed from what it was 40 years ago. Uh, and today it's very focused. Uh, the, the papers are uh, qu quite marginal, really. Right. So uh, what's your take on interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary research? Well, you know, when you think about it, of all the business school disciplines, whether it's accounting or marketing, they're all multidisciplinary in a lot of ways. In real life, they are multidisciplinary. And theoretically, we may not see that. But every time I've served on the board of directors, there's never, an, never a problem that is simple. It's always organic, mixed up marketing, finance, and sociology, and consumer behavior, and employee behavior. And, you know, so in real life, the problems, at least that rise up to the level of a CEO and, and the board, are usually complex interdisciplinary problems. So not an international business of all the fields is probably more international more intercultural, more interdisciplinary than any other field. Because you think about a global mindset, I mean, it's interdisciplinary. You can't have a single discipline focus. So to me, IB research is inherently interdisciplinary. I think you need to um, steep your IB research in interdisciplinary insights. There is no doubt about that in my mind. Otherwise, you get to be very narrow. You get what I call physics envy in international business, where you have neat theories and then this empirical evidence fits right in there like physics. Unfortunately, IB is not physics, but a lot of people, a lot of scholars, especially younger ones these days, try to make IB into a physics, like physics. So there's a lot of physics envy. And I, I believe that does not serve IB thinking properly. Interesting. Uh, about the, uh, the evolution then, uh, what can you say about the, well, what's going to happen in the future for the field? I mean, obviously uh, there is a lot of uh, demand for precise uh, measurements and precise reporting, which is coming at the expense of um, a lot of things. So what are yeah. we losing along the way with this precision or well, precision? First of all, precision? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think uh, the precise questions are important too. Don't get me wrong. If done properly, it's very important to know the details because the devil is in the details most of the time. And so I'm not against them. I think it's very nice, very helpful. But you want to keep in mind that how do they fit in in the broader picture? And, um, and by losing, by focusing on narrow questions, if you do just that, we are losing a lot of insight into why phenomena in IB happen, why and how things happen. They don't happen in a vacuum and um, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's incomplete understanding. 
and uh, so I think uh, we, um, um, as, as academic scholars, uh, sometimes uh, tend to have limited understanding of uh, what's happened. About uh, advice and mentoring portion, uh, what is one thing you wish you would have known early on in your career that you uh, later on realized uh, that it was quite sentiment is quite important. Well, I think um, one of them was it's a process of building your confidence as a scholar, as a as a researcher. Um, your natural tendency is to do the hot topics that a lot of people are attacking, and I think at some point I realized that that kind of activity can lead to burnout. When you're asking questions and researching questions that, that really don't interest you as a person very much. It doesn't uh, relate to your background and the unique individual that you are. It's sort of um, copying something, somebody else's wishes and goals. So as you gain confidence in your ability as a scholar, you need to pick topics that interest you as a person. And so you need to pick uh, topics that you find interesting. And so that way, when you do the scholarship and do the research, there's less chance of burnout. You enjoy it more. You're likely to continue it for many more years. Then I've seen a lot of young scholars, brilliant young scholars get burnt out and not do much after they get tenure. And so, at least by the time you get tenure, by the time when you're an associate professor, you know you can publish, you've been given tenure. And so it's time to explore things that appeal to you as a person. Topics in IB or whatever field of research is, you know, it's, um, you gotta move more in that direction. Sure. So now the advice for junior faculty or PhD students is uh, always to follow the passion, follow interesting things that are unique to you. And uh, what's the advice uh, for mid-career uh, scholars after tenure? Well, like I said, what I said was actually for mid-career professionals after they are promoted in tenure to associate. Um, I think for... Um, that would be good advice for mid-career people to do topics that are really interesting for them. On the, on the PhD student level, I would say the biggest quality you bring to your work as a scholar is curiosity. And the idea is to keep a journal of interesting ideas that you encounter while you're doing your dissertation maybe, or while you're busy with one project is to keep a record of other interesting ideas you run into. And, and be curious. Um, and also one of my goals used to be, and that's what I try to inculcate in my students is to, is that at least during when I was um, active as a scholar, I'm only slightly active now, I'm somewhat active still, uh, I can't get rid of my obsession to do some research. <laughs> but, 
But but in any case, I would say that be curious and learn new research methodologies anytime you can. That time spent in learning new methodologies is extremely valuable because you don't know where you're going to apply it, when you're going to apply it, and you have to have a toolkit of various research methodologies that you can apply. So I think that's um, the two things I would say, just bring your curiosity, keep a journal, and, um, and you know, pursue the ideas that you find interesting. Uh, for the sake of time, what's the question that I should have asked you about heavens? I'm sorry? What's the question that I should have asked you about heavens? Well, um, I think one of the things that is not um, illuminated enough is uh, experience in IB of immigrant scholars. That is not documented well. And I think they're, I don't know if I call it IB research, but it's like meta research, you know. Um, you need to document how uh, the career experiences of uh, immigrant IB scholars are compared to native, native born American scholars. I think that'll be an interesting topic because the more I reflect back on my career, um, the more I think about it, especially being a dark skinned person. Um, I think that's something that I did not talk about. I did not think about it very much even when I was going through my career, but looking back on it, I can see the effects and see the impact of that. And I think that's not as well documented as it should be. Would you consider the British as an immigrant IB scholar? If you're, a, if you're a British IB scholar, would you be considered an immigrant IB scholar? Because your uh, definition was non-American, you said? Well, yeah. I mean, in the sense that, look, I'm getting into a very uh, deep morass here when you ask me to define an IB, immigrant IB scholar. I mean, for example, in the US, it's somebody who grew up in another country. It could be a, even an American that lived in Germany or Asia somewhere all their life because their parents were in that business. So, so I had in mind people from Turkey, from India, from whatever, you know, different places, Africa. Do you foresee differences in training? Do you see for the, foresee differences in mentality? What is the thing that uh, propels you to think is going to be differences in immigrants' IB scholarship? Well, I think that a lot of times, um, um, I don't know how to put it. Um, you know, the women's movement gave me some vocabulary to talk about immigrant, immigrant scholars, dark-skinned scholars. You're in a meeting and you'll say something and yes, you know, they maybe even acknowledge, maybe not. And the discussion moves on. And a non-immigrant scholar says the same thing a little bit later. And, oh, that's a great idea. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> we can, how can we take it forward? So those kind of events, as an example, have been huge. Okay. And there are other things like that. I mean, you know. 
Okay. Um, right. This was very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I learned a lot from this interview. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Thank you very much for asking me to do this. You take care and have a wonderful day. Thanks.